Welcome to the Q-Law Pod and our special series, What's Next with Afshin Chowdhury. Each episode, Afshin chats with Queen's Law grads about their experiences, their education, and their career path after law school to explore the idea that there is no one way to be a lawyer. For other episodes of the Q-Law podcast, visit soundcloud.com backslash queens-law or your favorite podcast provider. In this week's episode, Afshin chats with Justice Donald McLeod, Law 95, who is also an adjunct professor at Queen's Law, where he teaches both trial advocacy and critical race theory. As a law student, Justice McLeod was class VP and Queen's chapter president of the Black Law Students Association of Canada. After being called to the bar in 1998, Justice Donald McLeod began practicing criminal law. A few years later, he founded the McLeod Group, focusing on criminal law trials and appeals, as well as administrative law. And in 2013, McLeod was appointed to the Ontario Court of Justice. We hope you enjoy this episode. Today is a really, really, really special episode that I've been looking forward to all semester and last year when we first conceived what we would be doing for season two. So we've got with us Justice Donald McLeod. And if any of you have had the pleasure of taking trial advocacy, it is just just the best ride I've had. One of my favorite rides in all of law school. So I'm so excited. Thank you so much, Justice M, for coming today. Oh, no, it's my pleasure. <laughs> I'm, I loved you in the class. Uh, I remember some of the things that you did in it. And um, this is a great initiative. So I'm, I'm ready to get it on with you. All right. Okay. All right. <laughs> so we've got some really exciting topics that we're talking about today. And I, let's just go right into it. So one of the things that I loved about being in your class is that it was our first connecting point. And this was that you and I have like a similar upbringing. But before we even get into that, I'm just, I'm going to tease the audience. We have some upbringing. We're going to talk about some cool topics. We're going to talk about code switching. We're going to talk about, oh, you're not even ready for this. But before we even get into all that, I want to ask, what was, what's a day in your life like? So usually we shoot this on Tuesdays and we ask what was Monday like, but just to like give a little bit more flavor of a full day, let's talk about what Friday was like for you. So that's today's Monday, so three days ago on Friday. If you could walk us through morning until you signed off. All right, so um, Fridays are interesting days for me. Um, I'm usually delivering a judgment on that day. I usually put judgments over to Fridays. I would have gotten up fairly early and went to work out, so fairly early meaning at 5 o'clock. Uh, got back home. I would have, in fact, on Friday, I had this very interesting conversation with my son, who's in his third year at U of T. And so we were talking about that and uh, laughing. Actually, the conversation was around uh, who's the goat. And so uh, he had, I had, had MJ, and he was like, Dad, I think it's LeBron. I'm saying, Son, I think it's MJ. He's like, No, Dad, I think it's LeBron. So we had that conversation for a good 20 minutes or so or we're having breakfast. Uh, and then I usually get into the office um, anywhere from 8.30 to 9 o'clock. When I get in there, I'm, I was actually prepping for this particular uh, judicial pretrial that I had. and But I also had a, a speaking engagement on Friday. So uh, since it was the beginning of Black History Month, mm-hmm. uh, I had to speak at a high school. And so I spoke there for I don't know, a couple of hundred kids. 
then came back to the office. After I came back to the office, I then delivered uh, one of two judgments that were on that day. Uh, heard the remainder of a trial that I was in a continuation for. Finished its continuation. Um, actually went to a meeting. Yes, yeah, so those are my days. I went to a meeting after. <laughs> after the meeting was done, I went home. I am the one that usually cooks at my house, surprisingly oh. enough. Yes. Oh, so, oh. What you know about um, that work-life balance? Oh, that's, that's right. So I got in and I got it done in the house. We had dinner and then uh, we just chilled out for the rest of the evening. But that was the day. That was... Sometimes it's almost like I had two days in one day. That was actually just one full day. Yeah, I was kind of losing track of whether or not. I'm like, wait, so... And then the last thing I had to do that I'm thinking about it is that after we had dinner and then we chatted, then I was actually preparing because I had to give a speech the following day. Okay. Uh, And then the following day was uh, myself, Justice Tulloch, and a judge from the Supreme Court of Canada. We all were judging the, um, the moot Oh. The Julius Isaacs mood. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that did happen. So I was preparing weekend. that at the end of the night. Oh, that is... Whoa. Okay, that's so... That's right. Just out of curiosity, what time did you wake up and what time did you go to sleep? So <laughs> woke up at 5. Oh. And then went to bed at around 12. Okay, so yes. for all our listeners, that is 5 a.m. <laughs> and then 12 a.m. Yeah, this yeah. This is the life yeah. of a justice. Yeah. <laughs> but it's good life all the same. Good life all the same. That is, that is wild. Okay, also I feel like our viewers need to know, for this episode, you know, we are always talking in like the, the mainstream language, what have you, but we're going to, we are going to be talking in a little bit of slang. So if you're not familiar <laughs> with what we're saying, I'm just going to translate where I can. So GOAT. As Justice uh, mentioned, G-O-A-T, greatest of all time. So all y'all who are listening, Mm -hmm. just letting you know. Because sometimes, you don't know, people don't know. People don't know, (laughs) but we want this to be accessible to people. That's right, that's right, that's right. (laughs) Which is, like, pretty pretty sick. And I think think it was your class where I did the phenomenon of, like, really opening up and talking in what is actually my more authentic way of speaking. Yes. And which is, like, using a lot of slang and things like that. So why don't we go into that? So let's talk about, let's talk about who was Justice M before Justice M, before law school even. Right. Like, what was, what was life like? Tell us a little bit about your upbringing. Yeah. And we're going to get into your career because, y'all, you guys are about to listen to the biggest flex <laughs> of all time. Oh, my goodness. So, but before all that, before law school, let's, let's just talk about what life was like. So I was, uh... I would have been come to Canada. I was actually born in England uh, by way of the West Indies. Then I lived at Regent Park, so um, Belshaw Place. That was my spot. Uh, Moved from there, then moved to Scarborough to another spot of uh, Toronto Community Housing called Gilder. So I lived in maybe subsidized housing for years, 26 years or somewhere thereabouts. Um, But, you know, growing up, I was your typical kid I liked um, as I told my class last year I liked girls in basketball that was that's what I did that's what that was good at both and that was the way that I sort of ruled the world um, you know I grew up just like any inner, inner city kid I just lived that life and you know for me growing up was a fantastic opportunity to be able to like see my neighborhood see the people that I grew up with hang out uh, I wasn't really a great high school student, so as I said, those two subjects were the ones that sort of ruled the day for me. <laughs> but I think for the most part, you know, look, it's it's that was my my flex. Those were my ends. So yeah. My ends were Scarborough. That's yeah. that's what I knew. That's what I knew all about. I didn't really vary out of Scarborough much until I got into university. But 
for the most part, that was my, that's where my creative came from. That's where my understanding came from. That's where my con- common sense was born. Mm-hmm. And so even when you were in my class, and as you said, there were some things that we did that were a little different. Yeah. That all comes from the upbringing that I have, right? Mm-hmm. From the questions mm-hmm. that I ask to the way that I ask them, to the way that I dress, to the way that I, you know, hang out. All of those things uh, would have been as a result of where I grew up and how I grew up. Mm. And I think there's something to be said about the intentionality. I think when you don't grow up within, like, dominant Canadian mainstream culture or the cultures that a lot of the lawyers who are in the legal field grow up within, and if you're outside of those conditions, we have to be so intentional about the choices we make. Yes. And I think that that extra thinking is something that needs to be appreciated. Yes. So I'm actually also, for those who are listening, honestly... I never in my lifetime thought that I would have someone teaching me in law school who also grew up in TCHC, <laughs> subsidized housing. Because, y'all, you do not understand. There is a big difference between people who grew up in TCHC and people yes, who didn't I and agree. who come to law school. Yes. Do, do, could you share a little bit about that in your time at Queen's Law? Because I'm just curious to see what has changed since your time, my time. Like, how has the infrastructure changed? What still needs to change? Things like that. Like, you know, just some real talks. Well, you know, look, when I came here, this was a... Look, I grew up in a neighborhood that was predominantly black. Mm -hmm. So 99.9% of the people that lived at Gilder, that went to the high school that I went to, the grade school I went to, were black. Mm. Uh, Then I went to Mac, which was an eye-opener. And then I came (laughs) to Queens, yeah, which was a very different experience. Um, I think that we were... I mean, there was a spattering of black law students that were here. It, it wasn't as racialized as it is now. Yes. Um, and I think the, you know, there was an intention to that. I mean, uh, you know, uh, Flanagan, who was actually taught me property when I was here, mm. uh, had a meeting with me, you know, nine years ago to see whether or not I would teach here or be willing to teach here. And so that was an, an interesting change, is having racialized professors that were here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for me, I think what, what was... What was different now, like I see the culture now, there is, there is a, mine was the beginning or the embracing of culture, of race. The Black Law Students um, Association had just started maybe two years before I got here. Mm-hmm. Um, we started seeing black students here. Uh, and I, I started, I, I didn't feel as comfortable with, the, with the, the campus at large because it was just so different. Mm-hmm. To tell you, when I got here, I remember the people that lived upstairs, they went to Havergal and they went to UCC. And I was up there talking to them. And at one point I said to them, what are you guys talking about? <laughs> I'd never heard of these schools before. I Literally, yeah, I was yeah. 21 years old and I'd never heard of the school Havergal and I'd never heard of UCC. I'd never heard of any of these private schools. Mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about them. And so as people were talking, assuming that I would have known them, I didn't, and so uh, this was a, this school was a culture shock for me mm-hmm. in more mm-hmm. ways than one. Uh, and I, but that being said, did I like the law school? I did. I absolutely loved it. Yeah. I I loved this as a university town. I got to know very good friends who are still friends of mine now, um, from all different races and backgrounds. And so there was a there was a learning that I got here, a learning and an understanding that I sort of. Um, became able to appreciate as a result. 
Yeah. Uh, and so I wouldn't I wouldn't actually change it. I wouldn't I wouldn't want to go anywhere else. I'm glad I came to Queens. Oh, that's so wholesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I actually want to revisit this idea of culture shock because yeah. I I think I had mentioned to you that I've been at Queens forever. Mm-hmm. And so this is now my ninth year at yes. Queens. This will be my ninth year finishing. And I thought, okay, I saw it all. You know, I did my undergrad <laughs> here, then I did my Bachelor of Education here, then I did my Master's here. And I'm like, no, I, I've seen it all. Then I came to law school and I faced a culture shock yes. right when it came to law school because it was, like you were saying, there was a much more dense population, I think, of people who, and again, this isn't, this isn't, a positive or negative statement. It's a neutral statement. It's an observation. There's a right. dense population of people who are from a higher socioeconomic background, yes. those who have come from private school education, and there's a very stark difference between these upbringings. And so I remember telling you that I grew up on the Esplanade, which is the hood that's yes, adjacent to Regent Park. So we're, mm-hmm. we're neighboring that's hoods. Right, that's right. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so it was like, I still remember the first day when I came to Queen's University in general. So this is my undergrad nine years ago. I'm really aging myself, but you know what? It's okay. Cause it's okay. age is just a number. <laughs> <laughs> so I came and I remember one of the first things we were just talking about, oh, what are the things that happened to you this week? And I had casually just mentioned, oh yeah, you know, my neighbor was shot last week and people were just, I just killed the conversation. I killed, killed the dinner. Mm-hmm, the mood mm-hmm. was dead for the yes, rest of the day. Right. Right, and I right. thought, oh, I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> and then I realized, oh, actually, listen, like you've you've lived a life that's very different, where yes. this is not the everyday. Yeah. And it's also the same thing in terms of growing up, where I was, my sister and I were the only brown kids at our school. And then there was maybe a handful of East Asian people. And like in terms of racial diversity, it was a predominantly black neighborhood. Right. So many of my classmates in the culture I grew up with also contributed to this idea of growing up in an inner city where there's a lot of cultures feeding into the way we speak so it wasn't just that we were picking up on a certain culture's language but there was just an amalgamation of so many different cultures it's the reason why if you go to toronto you'll have non-muslims saying things like yo wallah and things like that so it's just like you know it's just because of the way we talk and it's like you know it's not it's not a religious thing it's like this is just the slang this is just who we are that's right that's right so i wanted to like bring this in and thinking about okay so here we are like growing up in tchc or growing up in the hood and having these kinds of just like these like tools and the way that we've seen the world and also now we're getting into the topic of code switch so just for those of you who've never heard code switch before, we could give you a little, we could give you a little rundown over here. So we got to credit a lot of the black academics and scholars who've really done a lot of heavy lifting and helping us understand the sociological phenomenon of code switching, especially black women scholars. And so the way that we understand this phenomenon, this code switching idea, it's like this sociological adaption where you're talking and speaking and appearing and behaving in one way in a certain setting, but then you change it, and usually you change it to appease to the dominant culture. And the dominant culture might be so that you can get fair treatment or better quality service or even employment opportunities. And this really links to us at Queen's yes, Law. That's right. As people who want to go into law and we go through things like the OCI, which is on-campus interviews for those of you who are outside of the legal field or new to the legal field. We have this formalized interview process and we have a lot of different stages of interviews. So just kind of thinking of, okay, code switch. It's this phenomenon where we switch up. So, for example, growing up in the hood for me meant that there was a way that I talked and a way that I spoke that completely changed in order to 
be seen as an intellect and someone who is a human being who's of the same caliber or should be given the same kind of treatment. And I intentionally, if anyone's taking my class right now in 3L, the way I do not code switch, I just talk now in my authentic self. Honestly, a lot of it is also credited to like taking a class with someone like you, where I felt comfortable to kind of ease into it, and now I'm full-on talking in slang. Like, I'm out here in admin law, <laughs> dropping whatever I can. Like, today I was like, yo, Professor Reiner, hold the phone. I went into my little legal analysis. But it's because I think it's so important for us to see, like, an intellect can sound different. There are different ways... There's not one way to be a lawyer. Yes. And that's the thesis of our show. And there's not one way to be an intellect. And I think it's really important to do. So, like, just in terms of... I've given you a law right now. I've given yeah. you a law. But I'm just kind of wondering, did you code switch to get to where you are today as Justice McLeod? So, I think, you know, I, I can sum it up in some ways. Okay. So, when... Uh, so, if I, I... I mean, this is this is a very interesting example. When I go back and play ball in my old neighborhood or, you know, because I still can hoop, I can still get up in there and do what needs to be done to get it done. Like, you so, don't understand. This is like, you're like so, the top ten coolest people I've ever met. <laughs> so my friends who know me when I play ball, I'm usually very more reserved. It's hard to get me out of my, my comfort zone. I know, you know, what's going on. So my friends who know that I'm a judge, they call me Just Ice. No way. Yes. But when I'm now at, you know, in other circles, they call me justice. Okay. So you can see that there is the idea that there is still a respect that comes with the post or with the job. Uh, but there's also an understanding that they have, they've now put it on my personality. So mm -hmm. they're like just ice. Like, you know, it's yeah. just now a, I, would, I would never have seen the word broken down like that. Unless yeah. it was from my old neighborhood, right? Yeah. I've never heard anyone call anyone else just dice. Like, yeah. it's, just, it's just from my neighborhood, right? Yeah. And so when, when we're talking about the idea of code switching, and I think now I'm seeing it in, you know, as having persons like you in my class, I think the idea of, of allowing us, what law school did was it intellectualized our common sense. Mm. And so it didn't teach us necessarily... Uh, new things or a different way of thinking but what it did was it gave us some words that we didn't have before and then it allowed us to be able to integrate those words into our general lexicon mm. but it didn't take away from the fact that when we go back home we still speak a certain way yes. and it's not we're, we're not speaking less and we're not speaking down we're not speaking you know unintelligibly but what we're doing is we're we're allowing ourselves to let our hair down there's some places where you wear a bow tie and there's some places where you wear a tie there's some places where you have coffee and there's some places where you have tea and i think the the integration of equity into the marketplace that they call queen's law is really the integration of of changing the, the allowing us to feel comfortable with being who we are and then allowing you to understand that we are this way because this is how we choose to be. Mm -hmm. And so really there's some places that you may speak French and there's some places where you speak English and there's some places where you'll speak, you know, but that's the whole idea behind code switching. And I think it's, it is, uh, I think some people have misaligned it to say that it's more about intellectual prowess. It's not. It's simply just about being comfortable. It's, uh, mm -hmm. you know, look, there's sometimes you, you can go down and deal with the mandem. 
Like, you know, and that's, that's from, that's from my neighborhood, right? Yeah. But I'm not going to say, I'm going to come down there and talk to all of you gentlemen. No, I'm going to, yeah. you know, yeah, it's yeah, the mandem. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's yes, how we yes, kind of, yes. that's how we deal with things. And yeah. I think what, what, what we have learned and what we should be learning as persons who are racialized, persons who have come from different economic um, communities is that our way is not, is not any better or any worse. It's just mm. our way. Mm-hmm. And we have we have forgotten, or sometimes the dominant classes have made us believe that the way that we, even down to the way that we eat, the way that mm. we enjoy food at a dinner table, like you know, it's you know, there are some places where you're not going to have roti with a knife and fork. You're yes. not doing that. You're <laughs> not having oxtail with a knife and fork. There's times when, you know, if I'm going over to someone's house, then I know we're not we're going to eat a certain way. We're going to mm. sit a certain way. And for many years, I think the dominant class, whether they intentionally tried to do it or not, made that feel inferior. Mm-hmm. And I think what we, what we then learned as we became sort of individuals more aware of our surroundings was that, you know, it's okay to be me. And so when you say to me that, you know, in your class you felt that you can now speak the way that you want, yeah. I think that what it does is it, it warms my heart. Oh. Yeah, it does, because it mm-hmm. makes me feel like, you know what, we're, we're getting there. And, yeah. and people are now understanding that, you know, look, there's some, there's some places I'm in and someone will say, look, are you, and I say, are you telling the truth? And they're like, wallahi. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got you there. If he yeah. says wallahi, yeah. it's the truth. Yeah, and listen, I, for all you Muslims and non-Muslims, you say wallahi, you say wallahi, we believe you. Yeah, that's right. It's, 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 it's just an honor code. That's right. And so those are the things that we, that we understand. And I think there was, there is a, there is a level of education that we received simply from growing up where we grew up. And I mm-hmm. think I don't, I don't take away from it. I don't add to it. I don't, I don't denigrate it. I actually think that it is, those were the, that's the school that I went to first. And that allowed me to be able to be the judge that I am, mm-hmm. the father that I am, the husband that I am, the oh. friend that I am, the brother that I am. I think all of those things... Uh, if I didn't have that upbringing, I would not be the person that I am. Yeah. yeah. You're just making me feel so pleased <laughs> right now. What? This is so sweet. I, I actually wanted to go back to something that you were saying. So so when I stepped into your class, it, it just it just completely blew my mind. Because you're out here dropping slang left, right, and center. You'd yes. just be out here saying all these things. And I'm like, oh my goodness. I've, like, again, I would never thought, I conceived that this would happen yes. in class. I just I just wonder. And this is, you know little PSA to all those who do hiring, representation matters so much because it's like seeing seeing this as a possibility model is what brings comfort into us as students to then take those courageous steps and, and be more authentic, to see authentic role models. And just a little plug, we got John McIntyre talking about authenticity in a few weeks, so stay tuned for that episode. But just in general, like just being authentic, like you were like such a possibility model for that. And I'm I, again, I'm so thankful. I'm just, I'm also just wondering though. There's, was there ever a point where you kind of played the game? Like I call it the the respectability politics game. You know, this is mm-hmm. another academic term, but it's kind of like you you play the game of representing yourself and what is like the dominant, the norm, which is talking in a certain way, which is like hoity-toity. So if you if you're if anyone's wondering like what I'm trying to say, it's like if you go to a job interview for a law firm, talking like that. You know yes. what I'm trying to say? So it's like it's like that. You you put that on. Was there a point where you changed that up and where you switched it up so that you were talking in slang while you were also delivering lectures? Was it like always consistent 
at what point did you feel comfortable enough to then be more in tune with that authentic self and also like to mesh the worlds because like you're doing a little bit of like remix right here yeah yeah I think you know the 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 privilege of being a judge allows you to do things that uh, maybe someone else wouldn't have been able to do right away when you walk through the door there's already a credibility that's that's entrenched in the person that you are the moment that someone is saying justice then there's an understanding that you know the law that you work by the law that you understand precedent mm -hmm. that you understand nat natural justice and the consequences of the law and where it actually leads one so then it allowed me to be able to to be even more myself to realize that you know what I'm not talking about other people I'm actually here like I'm I know what happens behind closed doors. I know what, what happens with my colleagues. I've seen them. I, I know how they um, organize themselves. And, and then you realize that, you know what, I deserve to be here. Yeah. And so I think when you deserve to be somewhere, it, it gives you the liberty to be free and apply what it is that you know. Mm -hmm. And so before, when you were on the outside looking in, you, you couldn't help but wonder, do they actually do that when they're there? Mm. But then now that I'm there... I realize I'm the one that you're talking about. <laughs> and so yeah. I, I think it, it, gives us a, it gives us a comfortability. And so I, even when I was in law school, I, I still spoke the same way. I mean, obviously, if you're, if you're having an interview, you're going to speak a certain way. It's the same way that if you're going to church, you're going to wear a suit as opposed to jeans, right? It's, yeah. it's not, it's, it, wasn't a, it wasn't something that I was proud of who I was. And then I was proud of where I was from. And then, you know, like, as someone would say, like, I rep Scarborough hard. Like, that's, <laughs> that's, that's like, my spot. Like, I'm not making it up. I'm not doing this for somebody. I, I literally am just this. Mm -hmm. And so when, if I, if I speak Patwa, it's because I can. Yes, yes, Right? Yes. If, I, if <laughs> I speak a certain vernacular, it's because that's what I'm used to. Yes. But in the same vein, I'm saying to those persons that are in the in the class, like don't don't sleep on the idea that there is veracity in what I'm saying. Mm. The 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 way that I wish to convey my thoughts may be at times, you know, one way or the other. It doesn't take away from its from its intensity. Mm -hmm. In fact, what it may do is it make may make it more intense if I say it this way as opposed to the other way. Mm. And so when when I decide, and I, I don't even think it was intentional. I just really said, this is how I am. Yeah. And I think that I felt strong enough in my person that you could take me or not. Mm. Uh, but I think, you know, and I think as racialized individuals, as all of us are in this room, I think one of the things that we are learning and continue to learn is that, you know, we don't have to believe what people said before. Now, mm. I, I am a representation of who I am of the community that I represent. You can take that or not, but um, I, was, I was wise enough and strong enough and bright enough to be here, just like you. Mm. And so I may not speak Estonian, I may not be able to speak Quebecois, but I speak this. Mm. And, mm -hmm. and it is just as, uh, it should be just as paramount, just as present, just as strong, just as determined, just as resolveful as anything else that you would say. Okay. Okay. So. Oh, I. You know. You know. I just. I'm just like listening. I'm like, this is just so beautiful. I can't. I can't I'm just like getting into the words. I. I wanted to actually talk about this then. So, 
I kind of want to go back to law school, and I'm wondering, I'm wondering if the way that we're raised, I feel like I already have my own prediction, but I wonder if the way that we're raised and brought up and the way we speak and the communities that we interact with also informs the kind of law that we gravitate towards. Yes. So I want to kind of go back to your time at Queen's Law because we got another criminal law baddie in the room. <laughs> Everyone who listens to the show is going to be like, yo, this girl is obsessed with criminal law. <laughs> but it's, uh, I actually I actually mentioned you the last episode that we did with uh, Colonel Kerr. Okay, and I was yes. like, yo, so Justice McLeod said that the sexiest law is That's criminal right. law. Uh, yeah, I quoted you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I'm kind of wondering if you felt like there was a connection because I know that your heart was with criminal law and after leaving law school, you did practice it for a bit. Yeah. So was this something that clicked for you during law school when you were here? So it did. Um, of course, you know, many of my colleagues were not interested in criminal law. It was not what was going to pay the bills for them. It was not something that they felt was was economically viable. Um, But I I actually felt differently. Mm -hmm. I felt that, you know what, if you're good at this, you'll be surprised just how well and how far it will take you. And so I did. um, And also, I came from a community that didn't have a voice. And so that actually spurred me in that direction as well, in that any kind of law that I was going to do or wanted to do, I wanted to make sure that that was the type of law that would benefit not just myself, but my community. And so the other thing that I married it with it was the things that I was interested in. So, of course, mm-hmm. I did criminal, sports, entertainment, and admin law. That was what my firm did. Okay. But for me... Um, Criminal law, advocacy, standing there, um, pronouncing the things on your soapbox, which is now the courtroom, and mm-hmm. able to tell a judge, you know what, this is why this is right. Mm. This is why this should be followed. I think had a lot to do with how I grew up. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I didn't really listen to the people that were around me. I mean, for those who are from Kingston, yes, when the law firms came out, I would have my share of dinners at what they call Shea Piggy, which I understand is still here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but um, I went with my heart. And I, and I will say this to others in this profession, other students, that, you know, go with your heart first instead of with the pocketbook. You'd be surprised. Your pocketbook will catch up. It may even pass and surpass those that are around you because you had such a love for it. But I was, I was determined to be a criminal lawyer. And... Everything that I everything that I did pointed me in that direction. Right. And, okay, I have a follow-up question. So yes. this is the thing. It's Our life experiences bring us so much closer to what we want to do and where we want to be. Yes. And then something that I think students also grapple with is, is it too close to home? So, for example, when I was studying for my first 1L midterm, and this is for December in 2021, and I'm studying for criminal law midterm and Professor Lisa Kelly's class. Shout out to the Queen. And <laughs> it was it was absolutely wild because here I was, I was learning about bail and bail conditions and I, you know, just like the onus and the crown and this and that, and I'm reading these cases. And then that is when I also learned that one of my friends was in jail and needed bail. <laughs> it rhymes. Anyway, and then I thought, okay, like I was just it was just kind of a surreal moment where I'm like, 
this is not just what I'm studying, but this is this is real life, That's and right. this is like a kind of a common occurrence. It's it's something that I studied all throughout my life. So even my master's, I study a lot of criminal justice and prison justice and abolition, et cetera, et cetera. And so it just it's just stuff that clicked with me because I have classmates who've gone to jail and prison and people close to me who've been interacting with the criminal justice system. And so I just have this, I I an epistemic advantage yes in terms of just knowing what it's like from a very different vantage point but at what point how do you reconcile the closeness of the content with practicing what you want to do without it being too close to home where it kind of gets in the way of like your well-being so I think you know for me uh, obviously we realize that when we grow up where we grow up that there is a spattering of of interests you've got people that starting their own businesses. You have persons who just want to be able to, you know, interact with the community in a particular way. And then you've got individuals as well that have been in trouble. And so what happens for those of us that are from these communities is that we end up almost being a jack of all trades. Mm -hmm. The expectation is that we'll be able to help uh, and not hinder, that we'll be able to give information to those persons that require it. Is it close to home? Well, everything's close to home. I mm. mean, whether they be someone that's in trouble or someone that wants to start a business or someone that's, you know, an interested in law in and of themselves or wants to be a teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, we, in, I think the, the, the melting pot, so to speak, of, of community housing means that we may be so many different things at so many different times. Mm-hmm. You know, you may, all, many of us grew up without our fathers, so then we... You know, we find that there's a lot of counseling that needs to be done or mm-hmm. there is um, there are conversations that we're all having together or they may call you in now and say, hey, look, you know, can you help us out with this or help us out with that? The other thing is that we actually, as a result of this profession, become almost like the, the county lawyer. Everybody and all of a sudden at a dinner table is like, you know, what do you, Afshin, can you help us with this? We don't know what's going on here. You have to know a bit about family, about immigration, <laughs> about criminal, about it's business. True, and so, you know, we, we recognize the sacrifice of those that came the generation before us. Mm-hmm. And so we recognize that there's an expectation that's placed on us that we have to uh, give back what we've learned mm. into a community who didn't have it before. Mm. And to think that, you know, many times we're the first in that community to become lawyers, the first to graduate from university, the first mm. to, to be in technology or in, you know, in the professions that we're in. And so then your phone will ring and your mom will say, this is auntie so-and-so and she used to change your diaper when you were this age and, you know, and... Her internet's down. <laughs> can you can you fix it for me? And you're like, look, I, I told you that I went to school for this, but I don't know how that works. Well, you, you have to tell her, walk her through it. Yeah. And so we can we can be anything from going to your house to make sure your cable works <laughs> to, you know, going and making sure that we can help you with a, you know, a, um, a living will to to anything. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, we we will take pride in being able to do that. And the other thing that I will say is that going into the law, in the areas of law that I did, made me realize that there was a utility in my community mm. where, you know, I didn't have to worry about money because I recognized that my, that my community uh, had its own wealth mm. and just needed to know where to put that. Mm-hmm. And so before, when we were looking for other lawyers to do different things, now I was here. 
Okay. And so it allowed me to start a firm. It allowed me to have different associates and uh, paralegals and law clerks and the like that were all in the same, they were all in that office with me. And wouldn't have been able to do that if we didn't have a community that had resources. Yeah, it's a very creative economy. Yes, that's right. It is. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. It is. Yeah, I was talking about this because I'm like, we could be human beings are more. We have the capacity to be more creative with our economy, and this is like one of those like beautiful ways that that can happen. Yes. I also really like this idea of that. I I think sometimes. I see in social justice advocacy spheres that sometimes we treat struggle as virtue, as if it's something that makes, I don't know, a part of our identity and something to somehow, like, there's, like, an oppression Olympics sometimes yeah, that like takes place. Yeah, like, we're martyrs. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like, oh, my God, look at me. I'm so intersectional. Yeah. But, I, I, you know, and <laughs> I, it's, yeah. I'm, I'm saying this as I know that you're, I'm sure you're going to go to another topic, but, you know, even sitting here and doing this, mm. you know, I'm proud of you. I think, you know, because it's a talent that you have. Look, I've been interviewed hundreds of times. I've been on Fox. I've been on CNN. I've been on CBC. I've, I have done this, that, and the other. I've been in documentaries, you name it. And I'm sitting here and I'm saying, Afshin is, she's not letting the gaps go. She <laughs> understands how to, when to let someone talk, when to come in. So I, I say that because, you know, in, in some respects, we're unilingual. We, we are or trilingual, whatever the word is. We have so many talents at our disposal that we don't recognize that that law can't hold us. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when I'm sitting here, I'm saying to myself, you know, looking at, at you as a student and someone who's got a, a breadth of information and understanding that you can... You can code switch when you need to. You mm-hmm. can you can let us know just how intelligent you are when, when it presents itself and is necessary in the interview. You can be so many different things, yet at the same time still be you. Yeah. And so I think, you know, one of the things that equity brought is not just equality, but understanding that there's an equity in us, that we, we come here resourceful, that the school, with the mere fact that Afshin is here, is why this podcast can still function in the way that it does. If you were not here, then we would not be able to do this. And I think what happens is um, the environment, there's, there's this idea of convergence in critical race theory mm-hmm. when it's almost mm-hmm. like this understanding that as, as there is a utility that is seen in something, it, it, it now shifts or changes the, the equity or the balance of power, mm-hmm. which is what we're seeing here, right? Mm-hmm. There's a reason why this podcast is, is still running. It's a reason why it's still being heard and listened to. And I think it's it's a testament not just to you, but also to the school environment to understand that we can't just do things the way that we used to. And so when you're talking about taking advantage of the things that we have, I think the advantage that you have here is that you are you're able to do this innately. You're able to do this because it's it's a it's a gifting that you've been able to inherit, that you can have conversations with different people, uh, which in, in and of itself is code switching, right? <laughs> you, can, you can have this conversation with me as a judge and have another one with a professor and then have another one with, a, with someone who's worked in different spheres. And so, you know, you, you would have cultivated that right from where you grew up. Yeah, yeah, I like what you're saying about that. So we, a lot of people do do this code switching on an everyday basis. But before, sorry. Also, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. It's hard right now. You got you got an interview to do, yeah, so you I better know, get to the next question. So you feel awful so laser now. But I also I do 
I do love that you brought this up because we all are code switching. And I think it's not that it's inherently a bad thing to code switch. No, it's, it's just not. becomes a problem when we're code switching because people look at us and have a certain expectation. That's and right. then the, there are negative connotations to a certain type of code that we need to switch out of just to legitimize ourselves. That's so right. that is the point where like it kind of turns into a problem. And even going back to this idea of like, you know, the oppression Olympics and struggler's virtue and stuff, just walking down the hall at Queen's Law, we've got all the graduating class photos and all the people and we get to see how Queens start to become more and more and more diverse. Yes. And it's like the thing that we need to celebrate and have gratitude for is that we're not meant to struggle the same way that maybe you did when you came. Not It's not a Queen's Law thing. It's just in the world. That's right. And that's right. the fact that people like you went through and hopefully what we're going to do is that we want the future generations to have less of that struggle. So struggle yes. shouldn't be virtue. It's just something that we're trying to hope to minimize for people. That's right. And that's yeah. what we're trying to do with the code switch. So it's like, how can we go through this world and, and actually recognize that it's not, it's, it's, it's a tool but it doesn't have to be something that's negative. No. And in fact, maybe we could use it as, as a tool to like succeed in this world. But no, I no, and, and I think that we will. And I think when, when we're looking at the, the multi-layers that come with, uh, with being lawyers, with being racialized individuals, I think the, what the world is waking up to, when you look at, say, Pellier Roland, and you're looking at the firms that say that you're going to or that others are going to. I was talking to someone downstairs who's going to Steitman's. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, again, a racialized woman. I think the, the environment is understanding that if we stay stagnant, mm -hmm. if we continue to perpetuate what we've been doing for such a long time, mm -hmm. we, will, we will actually lose our viability. Yeah. We will actually not, we will be of no use to anybody and we would not have changed with the times. Yeah, like don't play the game so hard that you actually lose yourself. Yeah. And you're yeah. erased. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, and I think we, are, we are fighting to make sure that we continue to, to, to keep and maintain and, and get ground in this place that we call law. Mm -hmm. And so you can see it more with the bench changing, the, the complexion of the bench has changed. Uh, you know, yesterday or on Friday, as I was telling you, or Saturday when I was judging the moot, you know, the Chief Justice of the Court of Appeal is a black man. Yeah. And so there is myself and Justice Tulloch, and we're there in his chambers, and we're just laughing at the fact that, you know, look at this. this is, <laughs> we never saw this coming, you know? <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, so I think it's, I think it's an important for us to ensure that generations build on a generation before, right? And so yeah. we, we'd seen where we saw maybe one or two judges that were black. Now all of a sudden we're seeing, you know, eight or nine or ten. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, so for ten years I was the only black judge in the Ontario Court of Justice, and now there's, oh, as in the past really six weird. months, there's been another wow. that's now come on, who's also also from Queens. What? Say yeah. word! So Justice okay. Cornelius. And okay, so, okay. Uh, I think, you know, when we start looking, I mean, as I say to people that, I'm the first black judge to graduate from Queens. Yep. And when I look at the wall, which I still have to I was just about up, to bring up the wall. It's, so, y'all, if you go to there, Letterman <laughs> Library and you walk up, there's a wall of judges. And for some reason, Justice M is still <laughs> got to take a I don't know picture. why I just can't get a picture up there. It's my fault. I just haven't given it to them. It's, it's not like a conspiracy or anything like yeah. that. It's, and just, it's just I know, I know, but you got like you dress fresh every day. You can take a picture right now and it'll be great for the wall. <laughs> so I just gotta put a robe on and take it. And that's yeah. been it's been ten years. Like I've been a judge for ten years. Just and, as, uh, um, yeah, what? yeah. So there's a there's a bunch of people up there wondering, where's McLeod? Yeah. 
yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we gotta get you up there. That's a, that's the goal of 2024. Yes, yes, I think you're right on that. I don't yeah. disagree. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but that's yeah, that, that's just incredible just to hear this because it must have been lonely those ten years. Um, you know, lonely in a different way. I think um, was it lonely? Hmm. You know, it's you know I, I I I'm thinking about that. I remember when I was. So my son went to a school called Crescent. And, of course, my son now goes to schools that I'd never heard of before. <laughs> and I remember saying to my sister, in fact, that, you know, I wonder if it's, it's okay for him to go there because mm. he's going to be a black kid surrounded by in a sea of white, right? Mm-hmm. And she would say to me, but he still comes home to a black house, mm. right? He mm. still comes home to a black family, his yeah. His aunts and his uncles and his grandmothers, they're, they're all still black. They're all racialized. And so mm-hmm. as, um, but we also as racialized individuals are used to being in environments where we are the minority. Yes. So when we came to Queens as law students, there was, there was very few of us. Yeah. So I don't think I, I, I felt lonely in that way. I think I felt uh, important to say, you know, it may be good to be the first one, but you don't want to be the only one. Mm, and okay. so it meant it meant then that, you know, when when's the next one coming? What are we waiting for? What's the holdup? Why can't we get another uh, black judge here? Is there are we is it that we don't have people applying? Like, what's mm. the issue? And so then it it's now that time to, as you're there, to be able to make sure that the door remains open. Yeah. And so it's it's it was more along the lines of not being lonely for where I was, but just being hungry for more. Yes. And so, you know, yes. and, and, and to make sure that we, you know, can... Because we also change an environment once we're there. Yes. Yes. And so all of a sudden now we're there and things are being run a little differently or uh, the way that judgments are being spoken about are different or in the in now in... in in lunch, the conversation becomes a different conversation that may not have been there if we weren't there. Yeah. So I, I didn't feel as lonely, but I, I, I mean, lonely is not what I felt, but I, I felt like I wanted somebody else too. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to share. Yeah. I wanted to make sure that we were able to share this with others. Yeah, I think that's a really beautiful way to, to kind of shape that perspective. I'm also realizing that we've talked a lot about justice and we've talked a lot about law school Justice Sam, but yes. we didn't have we haven't really talked about once you step foot outside of the law school, what was life like, and how did you go from law school to where you are today? Oh. Yeah, yeah. Oh, this is where you get to flex on us. <laughs> so, yes, just just no, lay it all mean, out there. <laughs> no, I mean, so I, I step out of law school. I now many people didn't know that while I was in law school, I was a musician. So I was actually. Yeah, this would be uh, maybe a bit of an eye-opener for those that are listening here. Yeah, but he's a man of many I was, uh, <laughs> I was in a group that was signed to MCA Records, so I was actually, yeah, so I was actually an artist. So, like, I was in tours, and <laughs> I've been nominated for Junos. We did music videos when we left here. That's, That's So that was, that was my world. So I'd done that all through law school, and that's why that creative part of me was still very active even leaving here. I then leave, and then I articled it a... A firm, a criminal. It was actually at that time the largest criminal law firm in Canada. Um, I was debating between going to civil or criminal, and I ended up mm-hmm. going to criminal. Mm-hmm. Then left from there, went to a smaller law firm, and then eventually became a partner there. And then 
uh, opened my own law firm in 2001. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I had done a lot of cases by that point. So I'd done a, a fair amount of murder cases, admin cases. I'd now been to the Supreme Court of Canada. I'd been to the Court of Appeal. I had argued cases that now are in the, in the books that we're reading here for yeah. criminal law. And, and then uh, was able to make law you know, on my own as interveners. And then I was also mm-hmm. in charge of the legal department for, or the legal committee for the African Canadian Legal Clinic at the time. Mm-hmm. So a decade mm-hmm. worth of cases yeah. from Williams to RDS to Golden to Hamilton and Mason uh, would have come through whilst I was there. Yeah. And so we saw the la- the landscape of the law change. Mm-hmm. Like where before it was just parks and all of a sudden there's this chronology and lineage of cases that are coming through that we're a part of. Yeah, and the court's just grappling with what is race, exactly. then racialization, then That's race right. consciousness. That's right. Yeah, this is uh, this is just notes from Justice Sum's critical <laughs> race theory lecture. I'm just saying, I'm just saying. <laughs> little plug over here. Justice Sum teaching critical race theory. Y'all gotta check it out. <laughs> so then we so then leaving from there and doing that and then um, eventually, you know, being appointed to the bench. Uh, it's been great. I, I've often told classes that I've never had a bad day in law ever. Oh, wow. Yeah, I've never had a bad day in law. It wasn't hard for me. I didn't feel... But then also, I realized that I had a natural inclination towards advocacy. Mm-hmm. And so it, it just seemed to work with my my talents, my gifts. I I could you know speak a certain way. I could articulate things a certain way, advocate, argue stress I could you know and so it was just natural for me to actually gravitate to this Mm. so I was not you know I was not created quote-unquote to be like a corporate lawyer that was not that was not going to work for me if I wasn't in a room where I was going to advocate something then I didn't want to be in that room Yeah. yeah but it also sounds like right when you left law school there's you could have gone into music full time and that maybe you had two passions. One was advocacy, the other was music. Yeah, that's right. Did you did you have to make a choice between them or So for the year after leaving law school and before Barrett finished, I did a lot of touring. So I actually <laughs> toured more and then so I was called to the bar after the tours were done and oh. and the, the music was um, you know, not as strong as it was when I started. So we were that's, so that was my life. I used to leave law school on Fridays and then I'd hop on a plane, go somewhere, study while I'm there, and then take the plane back and then come to school on Monday. That was, mm-hmm. that was my life for three years. And so um, I could have done both. I think I was glad that I did what I did mm-hmm. in terms of music. They didn't have any regrets where that was concerned. And then, mm-hmm. um, and then also I made that part of my practice. Yeah. Because that's why I did sports and entertainment. So I'd represented a lot of people that I knew from entertainment. They'd come to me, and, and that's how my entertainment practice started. Are you allowed to, are you allowed to name drop anything? Uh, <laughs> I can't, but let's just say uh, there, are some, there are some names that are very, very popular even right now in music. And I would say that, you know, they are, uh, you know, they, they don't go by their first names, but they go by their middle names. Oh. So I think those were those were people that were coming out and in fact they would have been 
dealing with some of them just prior to actually getting yeah, appointed. That is so cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that was, That's so cool. As they say, that was my flex. Yeah, yeah no, uh, honestly, yeah. yeah. yeah like, yeah. you know, flex on, mm-hmm. flex on all up. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we're here for. Yes. Yeah, I feel like this whole interview ended up being like, I was like your hype man this whole time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't whole. know about that. I don't know about that. But it was, you know, I think when we're here talking, you do recognize just how... Uh, it's nice to have similarities with people. It's nice to be able to. It's nice to be able to be in this time in law where mm-hmm. we could have a conversation like this. Yeah. About the subject matter like this. Yeah. When I was in law school, I don't think that we could have. We we weren't we weren't quite there yet. Right. And I I think maybe it was our own insecurities. You know, we didn't we didn't have any black judges that we could have had come through and mm. and and really just talk. Right. And then see that it was acceptable for them to do it, so then it became acceptable for me to do it. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't see that, but as time went on, uh, we got to see it more. That's why I think it's important to have alumni. That's why I think it's important to come back and teach here. I think it's. Yeah. It may make for a long day, uh, for you know to get on a train. It. I mean, when I get up to get here, it's quarter to five in the morning, four thirty. Yeah, I saw your email. Yeah. It's at five fifty-five a.m. today. <laughs> which, I, which, which I was on the train yeah. now coming in, right? Yeah. But I think if we don't see like faces, you know, if we don't, if we don't have a chance to hear different experiences, mm-hmm, then uh, you know, for me, there was a woman that was here. Her name was Rosemary Ofeobawaji. Mm-hmm. And she was a uh, a black professor that came here. I think she was doing her PhD, mm-hmm. and she ended up teaching law, gender, law and the law, gender inequality. Mm-hmm. Uh, but all of us as black students, we knew her, and we could go into her office, and we could, you know, sort of unpack the day, and she would understand it. And so that was an example that made me think, you know what? When the offer came, sure, I'll do it, even if I'm coming from Toronto so you know I use my holidays to come Mm -hmm. and I think it's important I think it's important that we're here and uh, that we can have the meetings with our own you know um, students that are here racialized individuals Mm -hmm. that are here and then make them feel comfortable in class exactly so when I saw you talking about Biggie Smalls and uh, (laughs) and child advocacy for an assignment that will remain nameless because we don't want to surprise the other ones before that are going to come in this year's class. Yeah. But yeah. when uh, we saw different people talking about different things, you felt comfortable being yeah. able to say what you wanted to say. Yeah, and the importance of, I love this idea of like building community. Yeah. Also, shout out to Balsa and yes, the incredible right. work that student leaders are doing yes. at Queen's Law. But obviously this month, like just like acknowledging how much student labor has gone in and and how they've been also holding our institution accountable to be proactive in the coming years for Black History and Futures Month. So just a little shout out. Just a little yeah, shout out seeing know. the growth. Yeah. And I think that growth yeah. is, has a lot to do with why critical race theory is being taught here. Which is incredible because yeah. it went from this, this lecture that you taught where people can come in once a semester that's right into a full-on course that is actually from what i'm hearing i'm so jealous that i'm not in it (laughs) (laughs) i just i hear about these amazing conversations that are taking place and it's just i can't even imagine what that does for the legal field that there are going to be people who are law students becoming lawyers who will have this information yes exactly that's that's just and and it, it is good to see and it's it's good to see the participation, and when when you say the the course is very multicultural, it is. You've got 
you literally have a spattering of everything. Mm-hmm. And I think the beauty of the course is that it doesn't allow, or it allows everybody to really uh, be themselves. And right. so as I would in trial advocacy, you know, challenge and, you know, talk about and question and query, and uh, it's very open. Like, yeah. I think it takes a while for people to be, to consider it a safe space. Yeah. Yeah, building uh, that trust. Yeah, and yeah. and yet I found that with them they are they they they're getting there. Yeah. Yeah, and now willing and prepared to speak their minds. Oh, that's wonderful. What would you say is what would you say helps people to get comfortable to have these conversations? Obviously, as someone who's a teacher in that space, mm-hmm. you're able to cultivate that a bit. But how yeah. do we how do we do this? How do we have these critical race theory types of conversations as lawyers as colleagues? more regularly in the everyday space in the workplace i think if if we allow people to make mistakes Mm -hmm. uh you know everybody's not going to be perfect on the jargon everybody's like um uh you know just just today uh there is a fellow there is a person that's in my class and um and they came up to me and said these are my pronouns okay Right. And so I would have not known their pronouns before. Okay. But they also made sure that I understood that it wasn't a critical thing. It wasn't they weren't upset with me. They didn't want me to to feel that uh, what they what what I was doing was incorrect. But they wanted me to know that this these are my pronouns Mm. and still was quite satisfied and I'm glad that they told me today, and um, I hope that they have an opportunity to listen to this podcast at some point because they'll know exactly who yeah. it is I'm speaking of. And uh, you yeah. know, I thought, I thought this is right. This is if if we can't make a mistake here uh, or anywhere, mm-hmm. then it means it stifles the conversation. Absolutely agree. Uh, and I think that they understood that you know. Uh, Justice M just isn't isn't quite sure about this or yeah. hasn't asked or didn't think about asking and now it's something that's now in my lexicon of thought mm-hmm. that I can now say to myself you know that's an important that's an important thing for me to know going forward and so I was right. glad that, that so I think we have to be able to to do that once we once we make it comfortable in that environment exactly. for them yeah then then everybody will feel comfortable to, to say their narrative. Right. Even right. if the narrative is wrong. Right, yeah. Uh, you can give a wrong narrative and then now be questioned on it and say, you know what, I think I was wrong on that narrative. Let yeah. me Let me think yeah. about it again and come back next week. Yeah, not being like too quick to jump. That's right. And I think, I think this is something that I've also been grappling with being in social justice advocacy for, I guess, over 15 years now. Yes. And something that has always bothered me is that this unwill... This, we paint people in this homogenous brush if they make one mistake in that, okay, you said this, therefore you're now in this box of you're this person. You're yes. racist, you're this, you're that. And we just are so easy to just kind of push people into these boxes. And so then people don't even want to engage in discourse. Yes. They don't want to speak because they, they're going to get cancelled. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. sometimes there's certain behavior that solicits consequences. And I'm not saying something penal like you don't you don't got to go to prison to say the wrong thing <laughs> but i think i think actions should have consequences or people should be accountable people should have the humility to take accountability and apologize and yes, be able right. to do that however we need to also foster a space where it's like we believe in growth mm-hmm. and i think uh, us as people at least in my in my ideologies i i'm a big believer of growth and 
I think we just need to afford people that ability to, okay, if you make a mistake, that doesn't mean that you're a bad person, but maybe you said something that's not that great. Yes, yes, that's, that's right. Okay. That's right. That's like, okay. We can learn from that. We that's can learn right. from that. I just, ah, oh, this is amazing. And, okay, you know what? I just realized that we have got to, we have been having an amazing conversation oh and going in all different directions, but our readers, I'm sorry, we're going to have to bring it to a close soon. <laughs> all of our listeners, we, I know this is great, but we'll, we'll have more of Justice M if you catch him for his critical race theory class, yes, trial yeah. advocacy, his lecture annually. But before we put it, bring it to a close, we do have one last question. This is our most important question. Okay. Absolutely. And it's, what was your favorite place to eat when you're here at Queen's Law? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I wish I could say that I had the financial wherewithal to be able to eat out always <laughs> or that I could go to Shea Piggy as from a reg- on a regular basis, so <laughs> that was not. My favorite place to eat was my house. <laughs> And so for different reasons, and I'll tell you why. So I would go home on the weekends. I actually went home every weekend. Wow. And my mom would cook all this food for me and then freeze it. And then I'd bring it home. So I had all that. But then I had this very unique opportunity to start to learn how to cook things for myself. So I could, like, make Alfredo sauce from scratch. And then uh, I started learning. That's This this is how I started to learn to cook. Mm. Uh, but I had also the knack for being able to make ramen soup in so many different ways. Ooh. So I, because it was a dollar for five, right? Yes. So then yes. I could have ramen soup Monday, Thursday, Wednesday, Tuesday. <laughs> I could have it dry. I could have it wet. I could have it fried. I could have it stir yes, fried. Yes, yes. So <laughs> me and ramen soup... That was like the best. It was like a love affair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so yeah. <laughs> if I had to pick anywhere to eat, it was definitely going to be at my house uh, because at least I knew I was going to get a good quantity of food Yeah. and for half the price. Well, there you have it, folks. Small local business that we got to support. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think everyone could relate, though, to, to the ramen. I literally just had ramen yesterday. There you ramen. go. Yeah. See? Your this is the student diet. Yeah. We all do. We all do. That, that, that's also Mark here. <laughs> that's agreeing. Right. Yeah. Mark's like, hey, yeah. thumbs yeah. up on that. Yeah. Me too. That's yeah. right. <laughs> okay, so, okay. First of all, you are just such an incredible person. I'm so glad that our paths have crossed because for yeah, me, you, you've meant so much to me through it. Just yes, my legal no. education, my time here, and meeting you, I just felt like, wow, there's a possibility out here. The times are changing. The legal landscape is changing. Yes. So I want to just thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for being you. Thanks thank for you for being me. like literally one of the coolest people I've ever met. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. Yes. Feelings mutual. Oh, yeah, go. and we really appreciate having this kind of conversation. I'm really excited to see what kind of conversations come after our time. Yes. And so I also want to give a few other shout-outs and thank yous. I want to give a big thank you to, obviously, our tech team who set this up for us today, the the Mike Square team. Mm -hmm. We want to thank CFRC because we're going to be airing this live in Kingston, Ontario, 101.9 FM. You can catch us for Queen's Law Hour. Thank you so much for giving us the hour. Thank you so much to Tim and my main man, Mark, always, for helping us out. (laughs) CDO, Julian Mike and for you the audience for listening there are genuinely people who come up to me and who say oh you know I listen to this and I listen to that and I really like these aspects so if this means anything at all to you that there's not just one way to be a lawyer 
Thank you so much for listening, for making this possible. You can catch us on Spotify, SoundCloud, your favorite streaming services at QLawPod Special Series. And I'm Afshin Chatter, and I'm signing up for <laughs> What's Next with Afshin. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs>